Hebrews 1, 4 to 14, if you're not there already. And let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this, evening, this morning as we gather here as your church, here in Altoona, Iowa, we proclaim now in prayer, even as we have confessed in song, that you are worthy. All glory be to Christ. Heavenly Father, that is our desire even this morning as we look at this passage, that we would see Christ lifted high, exalted above the heavens, above the angels, above the prophets, above anything else that is, and that we would fall down and that we would worship and that we would go and tell of our great Savior. May you be honored in all that is said and done in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. I know I asked you to turn to Hebrews 1, 4-14. I'm actually going to start uh, in 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 to 19. You can just follow along or you can turn there if you would like. 2 Kings 6, 8 uh, to 19. Now the king of Syria was making war against Israel, and he consulted with his servants, saying, My camp will be in such and such a place. And the man of God sent to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are coming down there. Then the king of Israel sent someone to the place of which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, and he was watchful there, not just once or twice. Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king. But Elisha, the prophet who was in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and get him. And it was told him, saying, Surely he is in Dothan. Therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So when the Syrians came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and asked, Strike this people, I pray, with blindness. And he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. Now Elisha said to them, This is not the way, nor is this the country. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. But he led them to Samaria. I wanted to start there because that's one of my favorite stories of angels in the Old Testament. You see, we're fascinated by stories of angels, are we not? Both in the Old Testament or, or even as we hear stories in our day. The story from 2 Kings, as I mentioned, of Elisha being protected by an army of angels. That great statement, they who are for us are more than they who are against us. It's one of my favorite such stories as a child. Angels are somewhat mysterious to us. 
It's easy for them to capture our imagination. In popular culture, angels are viewed as as beautiful and as gentle. Sometimes they're even uh, depicted as, as little babies in these fluffy wings. Yet this picture that scripture paints is completely opposite. The Bible portrays angels as powerful beings that often strike overwhelming fear into people when they are seen. And yet this morning, as we come to our passage here, in Hebrews 4, we will see that as powerful and awe-inspiring as angels are, Jesus is infinitely greater. Jesus is infinitely greater. He is better than even angels. And we will see that because Jesus is superior to angels, we who are in Christ must be faithful as we rejoice in the superior hope of our superior Savior. Jesus is better than angels. Last week in the first three verses of Hebrews 1, we saw that Jesus is superior to the prophets. That the word spoken through him is even superior than the word spoken through the prophets. In both instances, it is God who is speaking, but Jesus is better than the prophets. So you come to Hebrews 1, 4 to 14, that argument progresses, Jesus is better than angels. It starts in verse 4. Having become so much better than angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. The first thing that we see is the superiority of the Son. His superiority. The first thing here in verse 4, his superior, he is superior, his superior name. A more excellent name than they. Having become so much better than angels. Now that first statement, those first two words, having become, might catch our attention. What do you mean, having become? Has Jesus not always been superior to angels? He has. But what is in view here is not his eternal existence, but his exaltation in the resurrection and ascension. This statement is tied to uh, his incarnation, his resurrection, and his ascension. So after, we see that in verse 3, after making purification for our sins, he had himself purged our sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, at that point having become so much better than the angels. This is tied to his ascension, his, his sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's become so much better than the angels. This is a change of state, not a change of existence, MacArthur notes. He has become so much better than the angels. He who took on flesh, becoming a little lower than the angels, as Psalm 8, 5 tells us, is now in Hebrews 1, 4, exalted above the angels. Again, we see more language here in verse 4 that ties this to his incarnation, his exaltation through that, through his resurrection and ascension. He has, by inheritance, obtained a more excellent name than they. If you're like me, the first question that pops into your head is, well, what is this name? What is this name that he has, by inheritance, obtained? It's a name, as we see here in the context, that is tied to his resurrection. It's a name that is tied to his ascension and his exaltation to the right hand of the Father. 
In fact, turn over with me, if you will, to Philippians 2. It's another passage that deals uh, with his, the incarnation and then his exaltation. Philippians 2, verses 9 to 11. Actually, we'll start in verse 5. Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of, be- of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the, point, even the death on the cross. He humbled himself, becoming a little lower than the angels. Verse 9, Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, that is this name. This name is Lord. It is the name that is given to him in his exaltation. He is Lord. He is the Son of God, and he is the promised seed of David. He is Messiah. He is Lord. He's been given a more excellent name. And yet, he goes on. This is not where the author of Hebrews closes his argument. He goes on in verses 5 to 13 to show not only his superior name, but his superior position. This one who is the Son of God and the Son of David, this one who is Messiah, he is Lord. Look what else the Father says about him. For the which of the angels did he ever say? Notice the language of comparison there between the angels and the son. To which of the angels did he say this? None. He said this to the son. To which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. These first two passages... In fact, that's what we're going to see here in this passage. is a string of Old Testament passages that the author of Hebrews ties to to show that Jesus is superior to angels. Ultimately showing that Jesus is superior to everything. He is better. And the first two passages that he strings together here are Psalm 2-7 and 2 Samuel 7-14. He is showing the Son's unique relationship to the Father. And yet, he's not tying this relationship to eternity past. But as we saw in verse 4, he's still here tying it to his incarnation, to his exaltation at the resurrection and the ascension. You see, Psalm 2, 7 and 2 Samuel 7, 14 are both passages that deal with the Messiah, the promised one, the seed of David. In Psalm 2.7, it's the Messiah's kingdom ruling over all the earth. And though at times angels are collectively called sons of God, they are never individually called son of God. Here the Father says of this one, this seed of David, this Messiah, you are my son. It's a unique position. It's a unique name. Jesus is the king of Psalm 2. And he will be the fulfillment of Psalm 2 when his kingdom comes and he rules from earth. Look at 
Today I have begotten you. That passage in Acts 13.33, it ties that portion of Psalm 2.7, Today I have begotten you, it ties it to the resurrection. A specific point in history when Jesus is definitively declared to be Messiah. When he is shown to be superior. When he is resurrected from the dead, ascended into heaven, and seated at the right hand of the Father. This is the one of whom all of the Old Testament looked for and longed for. This is the one that was promised. This is the Son of God. This is Messiah. This one, Jesus, is him. He has a unique relationship to the Father. He is his Son. Again, he goes on in 2 Samuel 7.14, another passage referencing not only the Son of God, but David's Son, the Lord's promise to David, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. As I mentioned before, Jesus is the eternal Son of God from eternity past. And yet both Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7 focus on his role as Messiah. He is the fulfillment of all of God's promises to David and to Israel. He is both the eternal Son of God and the resurrected, exalted Son of God, the seed of David. And he is better than the angels. Because to which of the angels did he ever say this? And the answer is none. The answer is none. There is one person to whom the Father talks this way, and it is the Son of God. It is Jesus Messiah. He doesn't stop there. In those two, two quotations from Psalm 2-7 and 2 Samuel 7-14, we see the Son's unique relationship to the Father as Son, a name which no one else is given. And yet, in verse 6 and 7, it goes on to see the angels who worship the Son and function as servants. Here he quotes Deuteronomy 32, 43, and Psalm 104, 4. So the first point, Psalm 2, 7, and 2 Samuel 7, 14, the author of Hebrews has shown this son, this Messiah, Jesus, he has a unique relationship to the Father, a relationship that no one else has, a relationship that makes him better than angels. Here in verses 6 to 7, he kind of turns his attention to the angels. This is what their relationship is. This is what they look like. Again, when he, but when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, firstborn, that's a, a term that's often referenced to Jesus. It's firstborn by prominence, by preeminence. We see that in Colossians 1.15 and Romans 8.29. That language is used of Jesus. He is the firstborn of the dead in Christ. When he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angel spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? Well, the son has a unique relationship to the father. Note the angels' relationships to the son. How do we know that, angels, that the son is superior to angels? The angels worship him. Let all the angels of God worship him. It's a clear reference to Christ, the firstborn. When the father brings the firstborn into the world, this is Jesus Christ. And he says, let the angels worship him. He's superior to angels. They worship him. All throughout scripture, specifically as you get to the end, in Revelation 19 and Revelation 22, angels refuse worship. 
As John falls down before the angel to worship. And the angel, what does he say? Don't worship me. I am like you, a created being. Worship God. And yet here we see that angels worship Jesus. Because Jesus is superior to angels. Because Jesus is the Son of God. Because Jesus is God. Not only do we see the angels worshiping the Son, but notice verse 7, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. While the Son receives worship, angels are to serve and to worship. They function as servants. This is quoted from Psalm 104.4. Angels worship the Son, and angels serve the Son and the Father. Now, as you come to verse 8, there's another progression in this argument. And what you'll see as you work your way through this, this, these verses is actually, this is a building argument. It will climax uh, in verse uh, 13, as he's building this case. And so we've moved from the Son's unique relationship to the Father. We've seen the angels, what is their role? They worship the Son. They function as servants. And now note, as the angels serve as the angels serve, they function as servants, the Son rules. So you see in verse 8 and 9, the Son's eternal rule. But to the Son, he says, so this is still the Father speaking, to the angels, he says, worship the Son. To the angels, he says, uh, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. To his angels, he says, serve. To the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now, don't miss that reference there at the beginning. Your throne, O oh God. Who is speaking? It is the Father. To the Son, He. That is the Father. To the Son, the Father says, Your throne, O oh God. The Father calls the Son God. Don't miss that. Your throne, O oh God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. This is quoted from Psalm 45, 6-7. While the angels serve, the Son will reign in righteousness. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. While the angels serve, note the Son's eternal reign. His kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness. And he is a good king. He is an eternal king. He is a powerful king. And he rules in power. That last phrase, with, oil, with the oil of gladness, more than your companions, God has anointed you. It's most likely a reference to the other kings of Israel, the kings in the line of David, including David himself. And this one, this son, is greater than all of them. So there's almost a reference in the midst of, of all these quotations. You are better than angels. Even as he's making that point, there's, he kind of returns to his first point. You're better than, than the Old Testament prophets. You're, you're better than even David. There is none who compares to the Son. His kingdom is righteous. His kingdom is eternal. Verse 4 or verse 10 to 12, note the Son's relation to creation. 
Harry quotes Psalm 102, 25 to 27, and you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. So, so here, all right, so we noted in the first several verses, verses 4 and 5 and 6 and 7, he's, he's referencing the Son's authority based on his resurrection, um, based on his exaltation to the right hand of the Father, his unique title as Son of God through the Incarnation. And yet here he's going back and he's showing not only is he Son through the line of David, he is Son from eternity past. He is the one who was at the beginning. He is the one who laid the foundations of the earth. He is the one who the heavens are the work of his hands. They will perish, but you remain. He is eternal. Again, this is a clear statement. These are attributes of God. God alone is eternal. And the Son is eternal. They will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up. Notice his... his, his sovereign rule over. He was the one who will fold them up. He does with creation what he wants. They will be changed, but you are the same. He is immutable and unchanging because he is God. And your years will not fail. This is not just the son through David. This is not just the promised Messiah. But the marvel this passage is that this is the Son of God from eternity past. This is God himself who has done this. I noted he, he's building his case. It grows. And now you come to verse 13, the climax of the author of Hebrews' argument. Again here, return to Psalm 110. I mentioned this is a psalm that's returned to several times in Hebrews. To which of the angels has he ever said? The assumption, there, the not assumption, the, the idea here is he's never said this to any angels. He wouldn't say this to any angels. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? That is his crowning argument. Psalm 110, the son's authority and power. Jesus sits enthroned in heaven at the right hand of the Father. It is not a great man who sits on God's throne next to him. It is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's a position of authority. It's a position of power. This identifies him as Messiah and as God. While the angels worship around the throne, Jesus sits on the throne. He is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. He is the Son from eternity past. He is God. No one else has that right to sit at the right hand of the Father but Jesus Christ alone. In the first 13 verses, in this string of Old Testament passages, fulfilling or, or building this argument that Jesus is better than angels. He is superior. And you come to verse 14. It's just a quick verse tagged on the end here. And it references the role of angels. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? That's all he says about angels. It's just a question at the end. This is who they are. This is who they are. 
That's all that's left to be said. After you look and you marvel at the Son and all He is and all that He has done and all that is ours in Him, all that's left to be said of angels is they're ministering spirits. They are great and they serve God's purpose, but they're not worthy of the time that the Son is. Look to the Son and marvel at Him. They are ministering spirits. They serve. We already saw that. They're sent forth by the Father, verse 7 tells us. They minister for those who will inherit salvation. They minister for the purpose of God. They minister to Christians. They accomplish God's purpose. You see, the, path, the, the point of Hebrews 1, 4-14, it's not to downplay angels. Because they serve an important role. Obviously, as verse 14 makes it clear, they're important for me and you. They serve those who will inherit salvation. This is not to downplay angels. They are important. But so often we were so easily carried away in awe by these powerful beings that we see in Scripture. They serve God. They minister for us. And we rejoice in that. But the point of this passage is yes, they are great. And yes, they serve a purpose. But look to Jesus. Because he is infinitely better. Cling to that hope. It's a, it's a passage. And it's chocked full and we could get into all the little details. But this is the point. This is the reason why he strings all these passages together. That you would see that Jesus is infinitely better. He is better than the Old Testament prophets. He is better than the Old Testament kings. He is better than angels themselves. And his kingdom is better than their kingdom. The hope that he gives is better than any other hope. The salvation that is in him is a great salvation that is better than any other salvation. Cling to Jesus because he is better. And so because Jesus is superior, we must rejoice. Let us add our voice to the angels who lift high the name of Jesus our Savior. For he is worthy. Your hope is secure because your Savior is superior. Cling to that hope. Jesus is superior. So lift high his name. Worship him. And even as we saw in Sunday school this morning, we were looking at justification. And Michelle raised her hand and she, she made a good point. Not only should this doctrine of justification move us to marvel and to worship, it should move us to go and to tell. And the same is true here as we sit here and we marvel at the superior nature of our Savior as we marvel at Jesus Christ, it should not just motivate us to sit here and to marvel with one another and to lift his name up and to worship. It should motivate us to go and to tell of our great Savior. Go and tell. You know, as I look out at this congregation, you might look at the greater Des Moines area and think what 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 hope do we have? We, we can't reach this area. 
And yet, if each one of us would go this week and tell of our great Savior, of our superior Savior, I don't know how many are here this morning, but there's probably 120 people this week who would hear of that great Savior. And if we did it again next week, in two weeks, that's 240 people. If you just tell one person each week about your great Savior and his great salvation, watch what God can do. So yes, marvel and lift high his name in here. But then go forth and lift high his name out there and tell the world about your superior Savior and his great salvation. And I would also call to you this evening, or this morning, if you are here, and if he's not your Savior, won't you even this morning place your faith in this great Savior? Because you are a sinner, and your sin condemns you to hell. And God is just, and he is righteous to judge you. And yet, because God loves you, he sent his only begotten son to die for you. That's what we saw this morning in Sunday school. The justification. As the Ho's grand, little granddaughter said so clearly, so simply, he takes all my bad and gives me all his good. Won't you trust even this morning and this great Savior and our superior Savior and our superior hope, if you don't have that hope, turn even this morning and trust in him. Your hope is not in your works. You cannot earn this salvation. Your hope is in a superior Savior. Trust him.